Welcome to Very Honored Frater VT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, Episode 16, Andrew de Passano, Part 2, in which we get to speak to Hart Williams, who was a student of Andrew's for a very long time. But first, a few items from our Corrections Department. Sometimes when I'm talking with a guest, I, I might blurt something out without thinking it all the way through or, uh, you know, say the wrong thing um, on account of maybe just, you know, just trying to get it out quick. Too quick, probably. Probably. Okay. In episode 14 with Benabel when I spoke too quickly and said the Sefer Yetzera was the book of foundation. It is not the book of foundation. It is the book of formation. In that same episode, at one point, I said there were 12 petals on the rows above you when you're standing in the center of the vault. There are 22. Well, 27 if you count the little red ones, but... That might be a little too esoteric nerdy. In the most recent episode, episode 15 with Silence the Aquarian, I stated that Athanasius Kircher drew the tree of life we use in the West today in 1623. He did not. He drew it in 1652. Based on another version by Philippe de Aquin in 1625. Thomas! The train! Our guest tonight attended Andrew de Bassano's classes from 1978 to 1987. It's an eight-month course, so he attended it over and over, and eventually Andrew put him in charge of certain aspects of it. For example, he very likely led the meditations, which became my dad's morning practice, which became my morning practice when I was very young. One of the things that Hart has been able to clarify for me is that before he moved to the U.S., Andrew de Passano was known as Andrea de Passano. If you search for that, you find a lot more information about him than when you search for Andrew de Passano. Andrea de Passano was a Russian-born designer, comic book artist, and spiritualist who worked for Italian comic books in the 1940s. By November of 1946, having collaborated with Casa Aditris Adital in Milan, he began to sign his work, capital D, lowercase a, capital P. He became the main local artist for the publishers Creech A. Croc comic books, I'm probably horribly mispronouncing that, that were based on the famous comedy duo Laurel and Hardy. Besides stories with the main characters in cooperation with scriptwriter Roberto Renzi, he also created several backup features for the comic book, such as La Signora Cocode, as well as a revival of Il Professor di Stratini. During this period, he also created La Vita nel Bosco and I Terribly Monstratieri. Hart has really been able to help fill in the gaps for me, and I'm hoping that this will be the first of several conversations between us about Andrew de Pisano. And so... Without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we?
brother. Welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Your name is Hart Williams? My name is Hart Williams. And you were a student of Andrew de Pisano. I ran into Andrew through something called Books West, which was held at the old Ambassador Hotel mm -hmm. in the fall of 1978. And I really didn't pay them much. Never mind. They had a really terrible banner and looked completely kind of out of place. And uh, later then I found out that Art Kunkin, the, the publisher of, the, of the, the Los Angeles Free Press, was connected. So I said, well, I could go you know, check it out because – Let's face it, Art Kunkin probably knows everybody who knows anything about publishing in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I got there, and Andrew came out, and he gave his talk, and I completely forgot about Art Kunkin. <laughs> nice. um, you have to understand, I, 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 I come from the Midwest, from you know, like a, a family where my, my grandfather was a secret Rosicrucian, and my grandmother was a secret Al, uh, Madame Blavatsky fan. Mm. And they both had their books stashed in their closet. Um, and my aunt was very much on the path for, for a long time. But, you know, let's face it, you know, Omaha, Nebraska is not exactly the spiritual mecca of the world. Right. And when I got out to Los Angeles, I made a point of checking out every esoteric group I could possibly find. And as they say, you know, when the student is ready, the master shall appear. Because I had just pretty much finished giving up um, having – Finally gone to uh, the, La the, the Los Angeles Gnostic Society was, I think, my last stop. I'd been to the Buddhist groups and the Hindu groups and the Wiccan groups, everybody you could name. Um, discovered the Bodhi tree early and all of that. And, and I got there, and everybody said, oh, did you see Andrew on uh, Tom Snyder? I'm like, no. <laughs> Andrew had what I wanted. I mean, he had what I was looking for, which was, first of all, it was a school that took all of human life into account. Mm -hmm. And it did not ask you to depend upon the favors of higher being. You know, Andrew said very early on, you know, there are bhakti yogis and there's jhana yogis, yogis. And at the end, it doesn't matter. At the end, you get to the same place. What are the, what's is the, the difference? Devotion. Bhakti is the path of devotion. That's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, or or, or uh, a Catholic uh, uh, uh nuns with their rosaries, mm -hmm. you know, praying for grace. And the bhakti yoga, the path of devotion, requires that you sort of, you sort of leave your mind at the door. And jhana yoga is the path of wisdom, which is, says you, you better bring your mind along for the ride. Mm. And the great problem, said Andrew, is that you, you run into what's called mental feedbacks, which is you have a, a spiritual experience, and then your mind jumps on it, doesn't understand how it works, and tears it all to pieces. Yeah, it screws it all up. You write a little piece for Fate magazine, mm -hmm. and that's the end of it. Yeah. And everybody, you know, has their little psychic story that they tell. Andrew used to have a thing that he put up on the wall um, in the last days of uh, when we were at Hollywood Boulevard, mm -hmm. above the International Love Boutique. <laughs> and he said, without understanding, your leap of consciousness will be lost. Hmm. Very interesting. I mean, that's, well, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. I, I, I give, is this the example of my mother and she, why she's been stuck for, for, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, one day she was driving um, over the hill from Laramie to Cheyenne and it was very icy and she started doing donuts. She knew she was going to die. She said, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. Jesus, help me. And a, a higher power. You know, 
helped her and stopped the car. She had the experience. Mm -hmm. Her understanding was that she had called on Jesus. Therefore, that was it. That had to be the path, whatever. Mm. But the point was she had connected with a higher power. It yeah. was not necessarily concerned about nomenclature, but then she carried with her all of the baggage that came with, with her understanding of that name. So mm. her leap of consciousness there was lost. Wow, that's really interesting. That's Yeah, I heard a similar story My when my dad was possessed once. My mom prayed to Jesus and Mary, and then the room was uh, quiet and smelled like roses. And, uh, yes. Very yes. interesting. The smell of roses is indicative of a very high level of reverence. Yeah. And the point is, at the highest level, the the high beings are formless. They don't really care about names and whatever. The point is, if you connect them, and what Andrew said at one point, you know, I have this experience, and I see this being a white light. If I'm a Hindu, I think it's Krishna. Right. If I'm a Buddhist, I think it's Buddha. If I'm a Catholic, I think it's the Virgin Mary. If I'm a Protestant, I think it's Jesus. The point is, the consciousness was there, but your own baggage has now gotten in the way, and you miss the possibility of repeating that experience. Yeah. Because you don't really understand how you got there. Yeah, it kind of makes the world seem really narrow and small. I mean, what if there were billions of beings and it could be one of them? (laughs) You know? Well, exactly. But, the, but you know, we, we have this, uh, you know, we're about to go to war on a worldwide basis over this this arguing about whose monotheistic nomenclature is the best monotheistic right. nomenclature. Yeah. I mean, if you look, at the, you look at the definition of God and you look at the definition of Allah, it's either got to be, this, it's got to be the same person. Yeah. Or entity. Hmm. But the point is, whatever the ultimate thing is, it's beyond form and beyond name. We've um, we've we've gotten into the the idolatry of being of worshiping the words and not remembering the experiences. Right. It helped a lot the clarification about the the older spelling of his name. Yes. There's the you know it's hard to to search for him because there are some you know different. Um, I, I heard the podcast earlier and let me correct a couple of things. Thank Evidently, you. He was in fact born in New York. Okay. I say this because late in his life, they were going to deport him as an undesirable alien. Mm-hmm. And, and they worked on it, and they found a, a, a fellow, a kid that he had played with in New York as a very young child, was now a Supreme Court justice for the state of New York. Hmm. And he attested to, to Andrew's being there, and Andrew then got to stay, change his legal status. Oh, well, that's lucky. <laughs> yeah. His huh. father was, you know, they were, they were out of a Milanese uh, royal family. Mm-hmm. But he grew up in, in Russia because of the fact that because of old European politics, his father was a count in Russia mm-hmm. at estates and all of that sort of thing. And Andrew used to tell the story of how um, he said, you, do you think that money means something? Let me tell you, kiddies, the, the, the currency of the three greatest empires the world has ever seen has become worthless in my lifetime. Hmm. And he talked about his father went to the personal vault one morning and took enough money in rubles out to buy a new car, which also was enough to put any uh, someone through four years of college comfortably. Hmm. He said by that evening, that money was worthless. Couldn't wow. buy you a loaf of bread. Yeah, that's scary. So he had been through some stuff. Yeah. He had witnessed things that and, a lot of us only just kind of imagine or read about. Sure. Let me, let me tell you the other one that kind of came up when, when I heard him talking about Italy. Um, 
The school is a Tibetan Buddhist school. The story is a Tibetan in, got in meditation should leave Tibet and go to the West about the turn of the 20th century. He went and he initiated and taught Kostelani. Who was this? Who was Andrew Peter. The Tibetan. That's all we know about. The him. Tibetan. Okay. The uh, the ascended and, the ascended being that certain people have have caught, taught, keyed into, right? No, this was an actual person. Who oh, a real person. I've heard the Tibetan used differently. Okay. Yeah, at nineteen hundred, about nineteen hundred, right at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And he he got in meditation. Take this to the West. And one of the people he initiated was was Castellani. And the interesting thing about it is this, which is, I have. Uh, he told Castellani, who called Andrew, who told us, you have all of the of the the visualizations, all of the ideas here. You don't have to become a Tibetan in order to practice it. Translate it into Western idiom. Hmm. Because the problem is, Tibetan Buddhism is so filled with iconography, and even the calligraphy of the letters are, are aimed at the, the, their work, that in order to teach you Tibetan Buddhism, first I've got to take five years and teach you to be a Tibetan. Right. And the Tibetan said, well, you don't have to do that. You have the notion. For instance, in the West, one of the great problems of all astral travel is this concept of the silver cord. Mm-hmm. The silver cord. If you if the silver cord is cut, you'll die. Yada 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 yada. Well, in point of fact, Andrew said, no no no. Tuning into the astral is like changing channels on your radio or your TV. How far away is channel seven from channel nine? <laughs> They're in the same place. <laughs> no, it's a different frequency. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. And the whole problem of the silver cord, because this always came up in class. But what about the silver cord? What about the silver cord? It's a bad explanation. That's what right. that was. Yeah. yeah. But Do you know the origin was, of that silver cord order thing? To explain this, I don't have to go and tell you the story of the 32 compassionate Buddhas and right. all that sort of thing. Yeah. I can just tell you about a TV or radio, and you've got the idea. So yeah. Andrew's that school is Tibetan tantric Tibetan Buddhism translated into Western idiom. Okay. And that was the uh, the Temple of Esoteric Science. Yes. yes. And, and, and Way of the Magus was a marketing thing. Okay. They tried it for a while, then they switched back. And you know, look, when I first got there, they were just getting out of being out of the the, the Temple of Esoteric Knowledge. So it was T E K. Get it? Mm, tech. Nice. Yeah. yeah. The uh, well, the point was that it was never particularly that popular, but I did find that at the at its at its peak, the Order of the Golden Dawn never had a, more than about 300 members. Right. And at its peak, the temple never had more than about 300 members. And yet, both have been shown to be they're, they're very influential. Yeah. But it was never splash. meant it it never worked as a mass marketing thing. Right. So those different names are are attempts by pretty much Art Punkin to mass market Andrew. He was going to mass market him as a as a cross between Don Juan and uh, I don't know name a, 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 your favorite and par, a Yogananda. How's that? <laughs> but the point was when I first got there, it was a very practical, pragmatic fact. And the thing about the, about Buddhism that makes great sense is my salvation comes from my efforts. I got myself into this mess. I get myself out of this mess. Hmm as opposed to waiting for higher beings to come and save you and all of that, which is very popular in the West, Mm -hmm. because you can always lay off whatever horrible stuff you did on Jesus. (laughs) 
And then he forgives you, and you've got to forgive me, too, because you're not Jesus, and who are you not to forgive me when he forgave me? There's a whole basis of the Bush presidency. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> you know, I used to snort cocaine, but Jesus forgave me. Oh, my God, to you, too. No, that's, you know, it's a great problem in the West because that rationalization sits on a whole lot of stuff. And I didn't oh, want to school yeah. in which I was swapping one Messiah for another. You can see how, like, probably at the origin of it was someone with a good idea, but then it just got kind of, you know, it's like, well, it's good to get things off your chest, especially before you die. And then it's like, oh, well, then we should institute a system where you get into a wooden box and someone who's appointed, you know, they, they miss it. I think you know. you're, presuming, you're presuming too much consciousness here. <laughs> it's what, what lies behind the veil? You know, the, Andrew used to yeah. talk about that, you know, first class. We have what, there's the import, most important questions of our life lie behind the veil. We don't see them. How do we find out? Where do I go when I die? Mm. What, what am I doing here? What's my axis of growth? What's my purpose? And we're stuck seeing on this materialistic side of, of thinking that the world is only constructed of what we see with our five senses. Mm. Even though we know music is floating through the air. Yeah. Pictures are floating through the air. Um, all of this great you know, computer stuff is floating through the air. We can't see it or perceive it in any way. But if we get a computer or a cell phone, sure we can. Can tune in. And yet we believe that if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. Well, there's a huge chunk of the universe we don't see, and that's Andrew's first three classes. Hmm. I always used to call it like the, the possibility of magic. Like breaking down how do we put our world together and how you know, big are the cracks. And at that point, we can sit down and we throw away everything we know, and we start with what we absolutely know. We know we got a body, we have a set of emotions, and we have a mind. And we're going to work with them in a scientific kind of manner. And that's where the work begins. And it, it was originally designed, it's like eight months, and after the eight months, um, you have your toolkit, and you're supposed to go out and, you know, pursue your enlightenment on your own. At the same time, you know, you can be a you can be a, a retard like me and keep going back over and over again and watch again the process and see, you know, I, my feeling was there aren't a lot of enlightened beings in the world and Andrew's not going to be here for a long time. Let me get as much of him as I possibly can before he goes. Well, that's yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then when he was gone, everybody said, "Oh gosh, it's like this. you never should have taken him for granted. You, you you meet very so few beings like that in life. You need to spend every minute you can." Yeah. So um, you were with him that whole time. Do you happen to remember a, a a large bearded man with a with a big voice named John Dan Reeb? Oh yeah. <laughs> you remember him? What do you remember of him? He was a. Wasn't he a, wasn't he like a professor of literature or something? Professor of English at Pasadena City College. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and, and John, yeah, I remember John from the old uh, Thursday night group at uh, La Jolla. Okay. I, didn't he go to the Monday night in Hollywood on 83? Uh, I know he went to at least one of those. Possibly, possibly. I don't know. you got to understand that basically what I would do is I would go through the, 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 the cycle and then mm -hmm. I would... I would just start it again with a, with a new group. Yeah. As opposed to what Andrew tended to do. See, after eight months, you're supposed to sort of go off on your own. So you would take everybody who was sticking around and shove them all into the Monday group. Yeah. And then they would, they would do different things, but there was no particular um, – I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the day that, that 
I, I had been into class and we'd been through all the work and Andrew all of a sudden stopped and he literally did the sorcerer's explanation from Jim uh, Tales of Power. What's that? Well, he sat down and he said, okay, I had you do this. I had you do this. I had you do this. And then I had you do this. And it was all to do this. I know it didn't seem like to make sense to you at the time, but this was the whole point. Right. All of a sudden, everything that we had done was like, oh, my goodness. You ever read Tales of Power by Carlos Castaneda? I haven't, but that's what what my generation would call wax on, wax off, uh, making a reference to Karate Kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He didn't know why he had to wash all the windows until he started being able to block. In the Tales of Power, it's a little more complex than that because he's talking about all the things that he's taught him over the three books that didn't seem to make any sense. Mm. And this is like the same thing, except this would be wax on, wax off with a multiplicity of things. Right. And then all of a sudden he does the he explains it to us and like boom 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 boom. Well, the Monday night class was just simply additional techniques, additional insights, whatever. Oh, okay. Open in. I see. There so was a, a post cast seminar. There was a, a transcription. The reason I uh, had a feeling you went to those is there was a transcribed, uh, taped convers uh, you know uh, lecture conversation where he was asking questions and one of the questioners you know says question is there a methodology I'm like okay that's my dad <laughs> I know exactly, I know how he talks <laughs> so it's fun the other thing is and this goes back to something that, that showed up you you were talking about astral in the in the previous mm-hmm. podcast yeah. Well, you have to understand something very important, which is this. Unlike um, the entire Western world, this practice does not consider dreams to be some, you know, as as uh, as Scrooge said, oh, you're just a piece of bad cabbage. Mm. We consider our entire dream life, in other words, half of our subjective life, to be a fantasy, to be meaningless and useless. Right. The Tibetans believe this is nonsense. This is where we... You know, this is where we are in between lives, and this is where we are on a, a day pass when we're here. Right. And learning to, you know, one of the most important aspects of the work is learning to be autonomous on the astral, to, you know, lucid dreaming, as some would call it. Yeah. Because the point is, Andrew used to say, look, if I'm Andrew, and then... I go to sleep and I forget who I was in five minutes, literally. You, you don't know what your name is. You don't know where you live, whatever. And then I'm, I'm Steve. And then I wake up and I'm Andrew again. How do I know that I was Andrew before that dream? What we're trying to do is bring that thread of consciousness through from the waking to the sleeping to the waking again. Yeah. Same thing with, with uh, the concept of reincarnation. If I, have been, if I was Bob before, and I'm Andrew now, and I'll be Tom next time, how can you say I've been reincarnated? I've just been recycled. Without <laughs> consciousness, there's no reincarnation. If I don't hmm. remember that I was Bob, then I'm, I haven't been reincarnated. I've been recycled. Interesting point, yeah. But the whole point is awareness, awareness, awareness. And the whole point of Tantra is you observe until you understand. And you don't make, you don't judge it. You Observe the process, and then there are techniques to change the negative processes in your life. Cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. Everybody wants the Tantra sex part, but <laughs> actually 90% of it is, is the cleansing part. Right. Well, because Kundalini is an actual power. Mm-hmm. It's not a little old lady in tennis shoes with a tape recorder thing where you get to, you know, um, you get to uh, fantasize about, oh, the Tibetans levitating tanks. 
<laughs> I remember the 1959 invasion by the Red Chinese, and my grandmother, in her good Alice Bailey, Madame Blavatsky way, was just sure those Tibetans were going to levitate those tanks, and oh, was, no one was more crushed when it didn't turn out to be true. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that. Well, that's, you know, people believe that, you know, well, these are all stories, et cetera. Well, this kind of stuff, especially raising the Kundalini, is an actual real thing and has real power and can really mess people up. And so cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. Andrew used to say, you know what, if we pour super fertilizer on the garden, the weeds are going to grow too. Yeah. And if you don't constantly weed the garden, you're going to get super weeds. And they will yeah. literally choke you, choke you to death. Yeah. Destroy your life. And so it's cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. So the, the work basically becomes um, going back to square one and rebuilding your concept of the universe from step by step in a in an experimental, isolated, repeatable manner. You know, just like a scientific experiment, throwing out the idea that if, if it's quote unquote subjective, it can't be scientific. Right. Well. Yeah, when all you have to work with is your subjective experience and you have to throw that aspect of it out. <laughs> well, the, the point is this, and this is the great – see, I was a philosophy major in college. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the end, I, I, dropped, out of, uh, I dropped out of college and went, went west to be a writer because I realized they had nothing more to tell me. Mm-hmm. All of Western philosophy goes all the way forward to Wittgenstein, who says you can't even ask the right question. And then the existentialists who say, well, we don't know anything and we can't know anything, and therefore it's all, all is doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Samuel Beckett says the only thing that saves us is we have hope, and Camus, Albert Camus says the only thing that saves us is we have no hope. And I said, well, there you go. <laughs> you yeah, after a while, you start giving you mm-hmm. equal and opposite outcomes. You know, it's a bogus philosophy. Yeah. And the interesting thing was Tibetan Buddhism starts exactly where Western philosophy, at the cliff, it, the the chasm Western philosophy has come to and can't get across. Hmm. Which is saying everything is subjective, dummies. If you throw out this idea that subjectivity in and of itself is bad, you realize that everything is subjective and there's nothing that can stop you from applying the scientific method to your own internal subjectivity, which is what the Tibetans have done. They've done with psychology what we did with physics. Hmm. You start at point zero and then you start to get at each level as you gain True experiential knowledge, like the knowledge of a brick falling on your head. Right. Brick falls on your head, you know you got hit by a brick. But some other person to whom it did not happen can argue you out of it and doubt it and tell you it's wrong and da 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 da. You're hallucinating. And you happen to know you got hit on the head with a brick. Right. That knowledge is unshakable. Well, this is the same thing. We're not, you're not learning stories. You're not learning. You're actually having these experiences, and each experience builds on the next one. It's a very scientific kind of approach. Yeah. The Tibetans only ask. You know, you're only asked to meditate five minutes a day, and you'd be amazed how many people have such problems with that. And Andrew say, "Look, if nothing else works, use your ego. Say, a frog can sit for five minutes a day. Why can I not?" <laughs> I like that. Yeah, his favorite. He'd always go, break up your ears, kiddies. Break up your ears. <laughs> well, it's like when uh, if I don't want to go do my yoga practice, you know, one day, then I say, oh, but then I'll look attractive, and then you know, like get my pride into it, get my vanity into it, and all that, and then it's, okay, I'll go do my my yoga. Yeah. <laughs> one of Andrew's favorite favorite sayings was, 
You ain't going to get to heaven on your virtues. You ain't got any. <laughs> Make creative use of your vices. <laughs> hmm. I like that. Yeah. You know, if you have to use your pride to, to sit down for five minutes a day, then use your pride. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, um, let's see. I'm wondering what other uh, what, what other specific areas of of um, interest we can cover. I my um, you know knowledge of Andrew is basically limited to things my dad would say in my memory when I was seven or eight years old. You know, um, and then. Sure. Uh, and then the the actual meditation, the actual om, ah, hum, and then uh, working mm-hmm. with the different sounds and the intonations with each chakra moving up. In fact, I didn't know the names of the chakras for many years. I knew them by those sounds um, that Andrew taught. Now, um, well, someone had kind of we our our terms for the for the chakras are kind of a of a hodgepodge of different things. For instance, the 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 solar plexus. Mm-hmm. They just called the spirit door. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, the Muladhara was... chakra remains the Muladhara chakra. Right. The, the second chakra is called the key, which relates to, uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese martial arts. Okay, the uh, the furnace it's, point it's, below it's the navel? A, it's not a... Yeah. Swadhisana? The, the center of gravity for the body. Yeah. And then Anahata, that was ah, we'd vibrate. Well, it's called the heart chakra. Heart chakra, that's simple. The and then the chakra, the third eye, and then the lotus of a thousand petals, as I personally call the modem. But the modem, yeah. I like that. <laughs> After Andrew's time. So that's what it is. You know, it's like it's your dial-up connection to the universe. I remember when my dad was teaching me, and uh, the, the for O, for the solar plexus, it was this idea that when you're digesting an idea or you, you formulate your opinion, you come to your realization and you go, oh, that it's the natural sound that you make from that, from that chakra. I thought that was an interesting. Well, I always said that the, 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 the mantra of clarity was, um. <laughs> um. <laughs> ah, the mantra of clarity, of course. Um. Well, the, the the interesting thing was that uh, we be I mean the, the the you know the first couple of classes very much kind of stripped down the world and start at point zero, and then we begin you know meditating, mm-hmm. but the meditation. Well, but the the, med, the you know, did 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 your father ever explain to you what Oma Whom is about? I've read a few things and heard a few things, but if he said anything, I, I've long forgotten. It would have been 30 years ago, uh, but I'd, I'd, love, I'd love for you to tell me. It's not, it's nothing, there's no mystical mumbo-jumbo to it. Mm-hmm. Andrew used to explain this because people would get, you know, wonder, oh, am I chanting the name of some, some god or right. you know, am I creating inadvertently, you know, committing some kind of blasphemy? Mm-hmm. That Om Ah is simply um, to get the three different vehicles um, aligned. Mm. Om is the uh, Om is the mind. Ah is the, the the emotions, the emotional body, the astral body, the and whom is the physical body. Mm, that makes sense. So you're going Om Ah Whom three times in order to simply, you know, basically harmonize and and uh, align the three vehicles before you start meditation. Right. 
There's nothing mystic, you know, there's no mumbo jumbo to it. It's, it's very much, it's, it's, it's a very practical, it's just simply kind of warming up. It's like warming up your car before you drive. Yeah. I had because read somewhere, I'm sorry. No, the go meditation on. that we do, most of the schools that I've ever been to, you spend your entire period trying to shut your mind up. Right. Well, the Tibetans, they stone the body, you freeze the emotions, you silence your mind, now you go to work. Hmm. As opposed to going through all this mumbo-jumbo to not get anywhere. You know, what is it? If you live in India, it is very easy to walk around in a loincloth and eat fruit for a long time. This is not possible in Tibet. <laughs> you better learn how to, how to... This is how practical they are. The first actual practice that you learn in Tibetan Buddhism, although we didn't learn it because we lived in L.A., is called Bonto, which is the, the generation of body heat so you can be warm enough to meditate. Hmm. That's in the traditional school. See, I years later, I went and I checked out various traditional Tibetan schools, and I was like, oh, my God, we did do a very traditional uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice. Wow. You know, certain things are left out. For instance, most of the students didn't have to spend the night with a, with a corpse. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's in the old traditional way. I did, in fact, but that, that was a different story, and that wasn't through the school. Hmm. But, yeah, that's. But yeah, I had a friend who was a, who was a an embalmer at Forest Lawn, and they didn't have much to do it in the literally the graveyard shift. Mm -hmm. So they invited me to come over and you know hang out with them. And since I was from a hospital background, I didn't have any problem with it. And then I realized later I had literally you know done my spend a night with a with an actual corpse and understand death. Hmm. Well, that's part of the the, the actual factual um, traditional practice. Wow. We didn't, of course, do that at the school, and it's probably been a thing that we did. Is there a place where all those are written out? Um, what? The, oh, the, the, those the those practices, practices like spending a night with a corpse and so on. Um, I'm sure there are. I mean, I've 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 been to different schools and mm -hmm. and uh, and I've seen that. But but again, see the problem that they have is that what the great problem with Tibetan Buddhism in the West is what Andrew laid out the very first night, which is. In order for me to learn you to do the, the the practice, I have to teach you to be a Tibetan. You have to learn our calligraphy and our our stories and our and our imagery and all of that stuff. And then it makes sense. It's said that a a properly prepared Tibetan monk of the age of about twenty could go into a cell with the mandala of the thirty two compassionate Buddhas and have essentially an entire college course and postgraduate course, because every one of those Buddhas. He has all the information he needs to basically synthesize everything he needs to know out of that. Hmm. And we don't have the time in the West to do that. So this path was meant to be, you know, and right. ironically, you know, the Tibetan was right. And the irony is, and one of the great moments that I always treasure is then when the Dalai Lama came to the United States for the very first time, we all went down and saw him. And I wrote down with Andrew, and Andrew got to go backstage and meet him. And I thought, ah, there you go. The two halves of Tibetan Buddhism meet again. Hmm. That's after, very interesting. After the Tibetan left and he went to Italy, Tibetan Buddhism traveled, uh, traveled uh, east to west all the way to Los Angeles. And finally, the Dalai Lama travels west to east 
um, to meet there. And at that moment, the two the, the two Tibetan schools, you might say, re re uh, reignited. When I was and one of the things interesting about that is Tony Leitner. Did you know Tony at all? Mm-mm. Your dad did. Anyway, Tony, who was one of the um, Tony, one of the things he did, other than being one of the board of directors of the of the temple, mm-hmm. was he relocated Tibetan monks all over North America. Mm-hmm. Just south of me in Cottage Grove, there's a there's a, a, a Tibetan school. And I went down there, visited them a couple of times, and they were like, oh, you know Tony. Tony is the person who got us here. Oh, he relocated them? Yes, from oh, I Nepal. See. And, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's been a, a large number of basically Tibetan refugees and schools that have come over here. And yeah. one of the people who was instrumental in doing that was one of, one of Andrew's students, Tony Leitner. Hmm. Very interesting. There was a guy who wrote a so book called The Heart of the World. Are you familiar with that one? Um, no. Oh, okay. Uh, let's get that. Uh, what I wanted to mention earlier real quick was uh, after, you know, having practiced that uh, meditation in the mornings with my dad growing up and then going to school, <laughs> when people would ask me, uh, what's your religion? What's your religious practice? And I'd say Tibetan Buddhist. And uh, they'd say, oh, so you're into the Dalai Lama? And I said, who's the Dalai Lama? <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about, and so then I had to I had to stop identifying myself as Tibetan Buddhist because people were were pretty convinced I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, let's put it this way: technically speaking, Buddhism isn't a religion, and there's more uh, than one type of Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, we're we're we are a Kagyu lineage, which is passed along orally from teacher to student. Um, I don't know which of them they are because, you know, the Tibetan pointed out what's important is the techniques and where you're headed, not what your, what your, you know, what your little bragging rights are. Right. Yeah. I just always say, well, I'm a Methodist and that, that ends it. (laughs) Because the thing about it is, well, the thing is you don't have to give up your religion because Buddhism doesn't have anything to do with religion. Right. Buddhist, you know, religion says who's God and all of that sort of thing. Um, Buddhism says there's one question that I need to answer, and that's how may I be happy. Hmm. Beyond that, you can you know I mean beyond that you can believe in all the gods or none of the gods. I mean we had in the same class we had devout Catholics and the president of the Los Angeles Skeptic Society, like the number one atheist in town. Interesting. Because it, it's not about belief. You believe anything you, you want. And Andrew used to always stress that. In order to start this, you don't have to give up your religion. Continue to practice your religion. This doesn't have anything to do with your religion. You believe in whoever or whatever you want. This is not about belief. This is about evidence. This, and this work needs to, needs to prove itself to you at every step along the way. We don't do mumbo-jumbo. We don't teach from books. Hmm. And this is this is coaching you to to you know to take that path. But he said, I have to warn you: once you take this path, abandon all hope. Ye who enter here, there's no going back. Remember, once I was in terrible terrible shape, and I went to Andrew and I said, Andrew, Andrew, I'm just you know I'm going through this breakup, and I feel because of the fact that I've 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 extended myself so much and have much greater sensitivities, everything just hurts a lot more. Mm. That's right. No, my boy, it will hurt. Yeah. Eventually, it will hurt less. Mm. That was the end of that. 
But this is a man who knew something about that. He had his daughter die in his arms during uh, after a, a, an air raid in World War II. Oh, that's awful. I mean, he, he know he know a little something about suffering. Um, I was going to tell you the story because I think it's, it's I've always found it interesting. It's also mm-hmm. a good example of how something can start out seeming good and turn and and show up terribly bad. Right. In the beginning, they all thought Mussolini was kind of this great guy. He's going to, you know, finally Italy would have the trains run on time. And he was at a party. He he told this story once. He was at a party, and two other students from his school went to Mussolini and handed him the duchess. The duchess means the bundle of sticks. Hmm. It's also called the fascia. Which is a bundle of sticks with a with a with a with a with an axe in the middle, symbolizing law and the power of life and death. Okay. Um, you see them. You see the the fascists on the floor of the the U.S. House. Hmm. Interesting. On either side of the speaker's dais, there are the fascists, and you see on the back of the the the, the dime, it is the bundle of sticks. Oh. The idea is we as a society, when you tie the bundle of sticks together, you can't break them. Hmm. Any stick individually can be broken very easily. The other version, when you have this, the double-bladed, double-bladed or single-bladed axe in the middle, that represents law and the power of life and death, which is we give up the right of vendetta to the state. Only the state can, can execute someone. Right. Well, this is an ancient, ancient concept, and they gave him that, which is where the, where the term fascism comes from. Hmm. Is them handing him the duches or the fascists, the bundle of sticks, and then he later defined fascism, and it all went horribly wrong. And Andrew started out on on the Italian side and ended up as a member of the resistance. Interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, he had some very terrible experiences in Italy in World War II, and that's one of the reasons why he had to leave. He couldn't stay there remembering his daughter dying that way. Yeah. He moved to Mexico and studied under a man who actually, if, if you know, most people, most of Andrew's students don't know about them, but um, it's worth, you know, he studied under a man named Samuel Ayunvior, who is hmm. considered one of the most prominent Gnostics in the world. Okay. And... Uh, most of what he studied under Bior, however, Bior, I think was it, or or somebody else he studied under, but he studied, he said he plant shaman. So that's where he knew his little plants, elemental things. Okay, so, okay, that that fills in a missing piece because there was I remember hearing something about him working with a particular agave plant. Exactly, exactly. That's that's what he did in Mexico. He lived okay. in Guadalajara area for a very long time. And they have a school supposedly still in Mexico City. Hmm. We met one of the students once. They brought him up. He always wanted to get an exchange thing going, but you know, gringos don't really much care to to go talk to them Hispanics much. So that never really happened. Hmm. Well, maybe back then, but these days it's a little bit. Well, better. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm talking about the the culture of Southern California in that particular era. We never we never got a, any kind of connection between Los Angeles and Mexico City going. Andrew tried a few times, but there wasn't evidently a lot of interest. Right. Hmm. He wrote a book in Spanish down there called Sex with, for the Gods, which has never been translated into English, although you can still find it at exorbitant prices in its Spanish paperback form. Hmm. And I've always wondered about that. I've also always wondered whatever happened to all the tapes. Tony Leitner was going to have the tapes transcribed, and then he said, oh, but Andrew spoke so terribly, and our, I had my legal secretaries try to transcribe it, but they couldn't make any sense of it. And I was going, 
he speaks beautifully, and I transcribed um, one of them, and it's simply a question of punctuation. Hmm. If you punctuate it right, it, it, it comes across very easy to understand, evidently. But uh, as a result, most of, you know, we have out hundreds and hundreds of hours of tapes that have never been transcribed, and they're, they're, a, they're a, like a living legacy, and I would like to track them down. And, yeah, and have, my understanding is that I'm going to have them soon and be able to provide them to Andrew's students. Okay. Because up until La Jolla, mm-hmm. up until they moved down to the La Jolla, when they were at the, the Hollywood Boulevard, there was, a, there was a mic in the ceiling, which Art constantly was trying to get Andrew to make sure he stayed near the mic because he'd wander around. Mm-hmm. And they recorded every class. And so those that tapes entire, are somewhere. Those tapes are somewhere. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. um, Virginia might know where they are. Um. And, of course, you know, his book, Inner Silence, has kind of fallen into, I mean, it's not in public domain. It's not, it, it, it's it's out of print and nobody can really find it and nobody can figure out what to do about republishing it. Right. You know, at this point, it could be put out as an e-book, et cetera. And all of that stuff, for the time being, just has been lost for many years. And I, you know, and then Tony, I was starting to, 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 to get to that through Tony, and then Tony passed away. So. Oh. I remember all the stuff was trapped in one of his rooms after the, the great earthquake back in, what, 94? Hmm. The Northridge quake. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all, what it, all, all his bookshelves fell and blocked the door. So he had a heck of a time getting in there just to, to, to start salvaging that stuff and seeing what he had. Wow. Um, I do know this. I do know if, if you're willing to go to the University of uh, UCAL Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. there are 17 or 18 boxes of Tony Leitner's stuff, which you know includes a lot of Andrew's tapes and publications and brochures and all the rest of that stuff. But you actually have to physically go to the library to see it. So you can look at it. You can listen to it. Can you check it out or – well, it's it's in special collections, so it's for okay. you know scholarly research. So you would have right. to go there. You probably you know make copies or this or that or the other. But I wonder if you could convert uh, some of the uh, tapes to electronic there. Well, exactly. Hmm. And, and I I don't know anything about it, but yeah. You know, so if I were down in Santa Barbara or in that region, I would make an effort to do that. But I'm Wh- not, where are you? I'm in Oregon. I'm in Eugene. Oh, okay, okay, nice. I moved up to where the air is clean. Yeah, good call. And we yeah, have I'll go up to Santa Barbara one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, just check online. It's the University of California, Santa Barbara Special Collections. Okay. And then you, you talk to the, the collections librarian, and, and they'll explain to you what you can and can't do. Right. That sounds great. But he has a great, Yeah. Plus, he's also, there's also the records of all of his, his many years of work relocating Tibetan monks to the United States. So. Very nice. You know, our school actually is is weirdly connected and not at all connected to official Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's good. You know, I mean, I, like I mentioned before, I always felt like I was like I, I always felt like my dad was a little crazy, and whoever this Andrew guy was was nobody. And so, the thing that I considered to be my religious practice, you know, at a certain point, I just stopped doing it and stopped talking about it. Sure. And and uh, but so it, it was nice as an adult to finally come back around to it and start practicing it again. Because I missed it. I mean, after my my dad passed away when I was 15 in 1993, I believe that was around the same time as Andrew. And uh, so I, oh, okay. 
by the time I wanted to ask him about the, uh, how to do that meditation, uh, he wasn't there to ask, and I didn't have anyone to ask. And so I ended up joining all these other groups and learning all these other different things that, were, that weren't that. And then finally, a couple of years ago, I was able to get in touch with you guys and, and be reminded of what the practice was. Uh, one of the things that's been very useful for me is Andrew did his How to Reincarnate in a Superior Way tape, mm-hmm. which is actually an American version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, hmm. which I listen to every year, you know, and uh, and has proven incredibly valuable, especially when I have friends who pass away, because the first side explains the meditation and the second side explains the meditation. And... Uh, it's been, it's, you know, friends of mine who have any kind of spiritual background, that, that, that tape has proven incredibly valuable to them. Um, I'm sorry to, you know, they used to sell it at the Bodhi tree. I, I just recently learned that the Bodhi tree shut down and is supposedly coming back. But yeah, for many years, you, it was right there at the desk, but you had to ask for it. <laughs> I know someone wrote a book but, uh, called the American book of the dead with that same intention. Yeah. I don't know if there's a connection. But, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it, Horace, Horace Gold's kid, Andrew Gold, mm. who I almost ran into at Westercon in 76. But he, does he have story. a, he has an Egyptian museum, doesn't he? I have no idea what happened to EJ. EJ is kind of a spiritual prankster and, and not down my spiritual path. So okay. I'm aware of him. I, I ran into I him accidentally. I, I read the American Book of the Dead, and it's, it's a very interesting whatever, but um, practically speaking, it's useless to me. Right. Yeah, Andrew he was did an Amer- he did a, a a a Western version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead on that tape, and the second side literally takes you through the traditional Tibetan Book of the Dead without all of the iconography and stuff that makes it so off-putting and difficult to understand for Westerners. Right. They're talking about the wrathful deities, such and such and so and so. We don't know who that is. Yeah. We don't know them any more than we know the name of the guy who parked, was our valet park guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea who that is, but um, and that's been the problem is you know tr- translating the Tibetan Buddhism into Western idiom. I think our school is really the only one that's done that. Hmm. Everybody is kind of stuck with that that fundamental problem of, and that's what the Tibetan said. He said, "Look, you already have the the concepts translated into Western concepts because what's important is where you're going, not where you came from." Right. You know, if you if you can achieve enlightenment without ever knowing who Avalokiteswara was, that's great. Avalokiteswara <laughs> won't care. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's say welcome when you get there. Avalokiteswara is so difficult. Most of us pussy out and uh, just go with Kuan Yin. Yeah. Same entity, but a lot easier to pronounce. <laughs> or canon. I like the Japanese manifestation. <laughs> oh, Kanzion? I did a sidebox with that. With what? Get out those karmic chains with Kanzion. Hmm. Never mind. <laughs> irreverence is one of one of the things I liked about our school is we we we, we accept quite a bit of, of of happy irreverence. Yeah, I'm I'm you're 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 definitely uh, beyond me because I'm not catching the uh, the references. <laughs> but I I'm usually the one making references beyond who I'm talking to. But I'm I'm speaking to someone who's my. It's one of the. Is one of the well. Look, I I told you I I shopped everywhere before I. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate that you're sharing with me. And I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in sort of the, the quote-unquote new age stuff, 
So I got to see all these different groups and and whatever. Yeah. And I appreciate them, and I I don't I don't denigrate. Well, sometimes you can't help but make a little joke though. Oh, what's that? So when I got to a thing, I'm I'm an American, which means I'm a Democrat with a small D, and I'm a Tibetan, so it means I can have any. Uh, you know, I, it doesn't matter if I believe in a God or don't believe in a God, which is always fascinating when I'm dealing with these atheist Christian arguments that happen all the time on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't, yeah. you know, there's there's a God or there isn't a God. It's completely immaterial to my practice. Right. But being a good Democrat, small d, I believe in, I decided I would believe in all of them. I believe in all the gods and also the people who believe there are no gods. Right. So I don't have a, I don't have a problem with anybody's belief system because I belief is just you know it's worth worth all the you know. I, I like when they say uh, when they say there's a god for every tree and a god for every blade of grass. I like that. It's it's but then you know you could just take the god part out and just have the tree and the blade of grass and then you're really there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think what it comes down to is the idea: the universe is alive and we're part of it. Yeah. That's a very radical concept and only if you for instance so the the uh the hasidic jews believe that uh you know everything is alive and, and our prayers release their souls from the the tikkun the shells hmm. um that they're trapped in so th- that that concept exists there and that concept exists in other places we're the ones who are we're so materialistic we believe we live on a dead rock hmm. and that is circling around burning rock and all those lights in the sky are burning rocks in the sky Hmm. Now, every other esoteric or metaphysical school in the history of humankind would find that idiotic yeah. and incredibly naive and, and stupid. However, this is our, the state of our modern system. Right, yeah. We, yeah, we think we, that it's we just We do cement. live in the Kali Yuga, don't we? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the and then I think... Is, I'm sorry? Well, the, the point is simply that for the first time in the history of humankind, we have the chance to grab the very best enlightened thoughts of all of humanity. Yeah. And instead, what we're doing is we're fighting about fundamentalist interpretations about what, what Andrew used to say. Look, most exoteric religion is a children's story. Yeah. There's a big guy in the sky, and he's watching you. And if you're good, you go up to the nice place. And if you're bad, at the end of your life, you go down to the grill room. Right. Okay. Well, that keeps children in line. And until you get any more advanced than that, that's as about as sophisticated a story as most people can handle or are interested in. Yeah. I always say, you know, if, if the only thing worse than religion, organized religion, is no religion. Hmm. Interesting. Which, trust me, is a lot worse. Because at least they're trying to impress the, the, the big guy, the, the big watcher in the sky. Their religion. Otherwise, they just do what they feel like. And we know humans can get very, very ugly when they do whatever they feel like. Yeah. But the, pro- the pro- esoteric religion is practiced by very few, and it is an attempt to get behind the veil and find out what is this actually all about. You know, I mean, even you see it in the New Testament when Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and then all these things shall be given to you. Yeah. The point is, if I don't know why I'm here, and I don't know what I'm doing, then I'm not really sure what I should be doing in life. And like most people, I just drift. Yeah. But if I know why I'm here and I know where I'm going, then every choice I make in my life is is geared toward that. And you call it an axis of growth. You know, I, I grow like a tree, you know, straight up and, and straight and, 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 and strong. 
And if I don't, I just sort of grow like a little weed that's all, you know, like a, like a little vine that just twists around whatever it wants and tries to suck the life out of anything it can. Huh. But, you know, fortunately, we are are so removed from our true nature that most of us are pretty, have very little power, so we can't do a lot of harm. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a, 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 the school is, is, you know, there's no sentimentality. Let me tell you the Suzuki story, because I think it's very important. Oh, good. Once upon a time, Andrew met D.T. Suzuki, the, you know, the guy mm-hmm. who brought Zen to the West. Yeah, yeah, my, my teacher, Gordon, who taught me Zen, was his student, yeah. Yeah, well, what's hilarious about Zen is Zen is actually just a little tiny cult in Japan. The only place anybody takes it seriously is in America. Mm-hmm. For the rest of Buddhism, it's just a little fringe group. Anyway, um, Suzuki was over and he was giving a talk. And Andrew was at the time, you know, he's seeking and all that. And he, he was so impressed with the talk that he found out where, where Suzuki was staying. And he went to the place and he, and he knocks on the door and a little Japanese lady comes in and says, Yes, may I help you? And uh, Andrew says, well, you know, I really, I, I want to speak to your teacher. I, I've, I've studied this stuff for many years, and, and, and what he said was incredibly enlightening, and I just wish, uh, wonder if he'd have a few moments with me. She says, oh, hold on, I, I'll be right back. And she closes the door, and she goes back into the hotel suite, and after a couple minutes, she returns, and she says, my master tells me to tell you that you're an idiot, and there is nothing he can do to help you not be an idiot. Thank you. And closes the door. Huh. And Andrew is devastated. Oh, wow. Devastated. He, went, he was so sick, he couldn't, he couldn't get out of bed for a couple of days. He was oh, just man. completely shattered. And then he realized Suzuki had given him a great gift, and it was one that he hadn't really bothered understanding from his teacher, which is, this is not a sentimental path. If, if I take my attachments to my God or to my country or to whatever I'm attached to and then put them on a guru, I haven't gained anything. I've just moved my attachment. Hmm. But this is not a path for the sentimental. And he said what Suzuki did was brutal, but it was one of the best lessons he ever got in his life, and he always remembered it. And he thanked Suzuki for his incredible compassion in giving him that lesson. Wow. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, when when my teacher Gordon was a beatnik, you know, on a motorcycle back in the 50s, and he showed up, um, he came in and, you know, and said, we want to learn, him and his friends. And Suzuki said, okay, sit. (laughs) <laughs> that was it, you know. Just, <laughs> they're like, okay, well, so when are we gonna? He's like, just sit, just sit. <laughs> and every time they'd start to talk, he'd just say, no, 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 just sit, just sit. <laughs> and you know, eventually they they got a little more out of it, but it was just it was just funny that they they drove from you know from Reed all the way to San Francisco on their motorcycles to find this old Japanese guy to go in and have him teach him how to sit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first thing they teach you in martial arts is how to fall. Hmm, that makes sense. And you always say, well, wait, I've been falling down my whole life. Like, yeah, but not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to roll out of it. teach you, you're going to be doing a lot of falling down. So the first thing we need to teach you is how to fall down. In the same way the Tibetans, the first thing they teach you is how to create body warmth. Makes sense. Yeah, that's the first thing if, you're going to need. If you're on the path of a serious school, you have to start out in a serious way. Yeah. And, you know, he's dealing with the fact that Westerners all want instant gratification and all the rest. And it's like just the simple act of sitting is almost is too much for him. 
I think part of it, like just looking at the geology, you know, you have people up in the Himalayas and, you know, you hear about or see on, you know, these, these uh, temples that are so high up that it's just freezing up there. And there isn't really, you know, I mean, the monks, they're not going to, it's not like they're out, out, just outside of Las Vegas or something and they're going to be tempted to go, right. you know, for the secular life or something. It's like, well, should I stay in here and meditate or go outside and die? And so when that's your life, you know, you you do get to really specialize in the subjective. And of course, they've been spending hundreds of years, you know, really, really delving deep into these questions where in the Mediterranean, you know, you farm, you run around, you go down to the promenade, see your friends, have a glass of wine. Oh, spirituality. Yes, I'll have some. And then, you know, go to the movies. And so, yeah, it's a oh, diff- so different culture. In India, hmm. you know, I mean, in India, it's very easy to become like a fruitarian or you know, just basically live in a loincloth and, and, and just bag, you know, have a beggar's bowl. And, you know, you don't have to really worry about much except maybe tigers. Hmm. But when you live, yeah, when you live in a desert, and, and let's face it, that's, that's what, uh, you know, the Himalayas are a desert in the same way that, Saudi, that the, 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 the Gobi is a desert or the Sahara is a desert. And there's an old thing in spirituality, which is always you see the monks and the, the 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 hermits go off into the desert. In the New Testament, Jesus goes off into the desert, mm-hmm. and this is you know it's a recurring theme in all of mysticism. And what it seems to have to do with is the desert is as rich in invisible life as it is devoid of visible life. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. It, tunes out all of the the static that you give from living, you know, like in a city with lots of trees and plants and flowers and, and uh, you know, radio and TV and cars and, and animals and plants and all this. Well, if you want to try and find that still inner voice, most of the time that noise just blanks it out. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the recurring themes in all of mysticism, in all schools, in all periods, in all ages, is the mystic goes out into the desert, be it the high de- the desert of the Himalayas or the desert of, you know, the physical desert of Joshua. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because that cuts out the, the, the noise, and you can hear the spiritual levels. Mm. And then once you've heard the spiritual levels, then you can you know what to listen for. You can come back into the real world and still hear it. And hear it in the background, in spite of the noise. Yeah, well, because you now know what to listen for. Yeah, that's great. And uh, the the uh, they used to have a, a, a public service. I think it was the Methodists or the Presbyterians had a public service ad about how we perceive the world. He's a uh, guy talks about he's walking with his friend one day, and he hears a, and the guy hears a cricket. He says, "How beautiful a cricket!" And the guy says, "How can you hear that in all the street traffic or whatever?" He says, "Oh, well, we hear what we're tuned into." He said, "Let me show you how." And he pulls a, a dime out of his out of his pocket and he drops it on the ground, and everybody around looks to see. The sound of that dime hitting the sidewalk, which isn't any louder than the cricket, but what are they listening for? Money. Well, they're attuned to it. Yeah. Hmm. And you know that that the you know, it was a little PSA about you know, but it's 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 a good spiritual truth. Yeah. That makes when you sense. when you can finally hear that small inner voice. Yeah. That small silent voice, then you can go anywhere and you can still hear it. But but most of the time, if you're trying to hear it for the first time, being around a lot of people and all of that that noise pollution, very difficult. It's one of the reasons for the full moon of May. Is that is the the, the moment when it's it's easiest to get up to really high level. Hmm. Used to be two times during the year. The other one's near Thanksgiving, and it's so polluted 
with the slaughter of animals and the drinking and all of that stuff that it's no longer of any use spiritually. Wow. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it has to do with, you know, we're trying to tune into the subtle things that, that everybody hears. They may, they put it in different words in different religions, and each according to the understanding of his culture and the, you know, capacities of their language. Yeah. But we all hear the same thing. And we all have great trouble at the beginning hearing where it is. So we have we walk outside the hive, and thus everybody goes out to the desert. John the Baptist goes out to the desert. Uh, Buddha goes out to the desert. Jesus goes out to the desert. Muhammad goes out to the desert. Everybody goes out to the desert. Hmm. And then when they've had their experience, they come back, and they're they're connected, and they can't be disconnected. Makes me want to go out to the desert. Well, it's, I mean, that's, that's it's, it's a very powerful metaphor in all of spirituality, and it's not merely metaphorical. Yeah. I mean, I still love, I like going over the other side of the Cascades, the Trans-Cascadian Wilderness of Eastern Oregon, and knowing that there's nobody around me for 10 miles. I feel yeah. very, you know, I can connect to the earth. <laughs> I, one of the things I learned in L.A., one of the great things that I learned in L.A., which I do this time, is being where the herd is not. Yeah. For instance, you know, when Star Wars, I saw I saw the, the raw some of the raw footage from Star Wars at the '76 WesterCon where EJ Gold was and his son Andrew. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised I didn't run into it, but I didn't. Um, and then I knew people in the opticals houses, and they were all talking about how great Star Wars was and all that stuff. So when it opened to the Chinese, I happened to be working across the street in the Max Factor building. I went down at 10 o'clock in the morning, walked straight in, and was in an empty theater and watched it three times. So it was great. Nice. <laughs> there were lines around the block for three months, but I, I found out that any time I wanted to see Star Wars, if I went at 10 o'clock in the morning to the Chinese theater, I could walk straight in and, and, and have the theater to myself. That's great. And the trick was figuring out what human uh, rhythms were and just making sure that I wasn't where the herd was. Yeah. And I learned how to do that in L.A. I did it so well that once we went to see, uh, what was it, Farewell, My Lovely, the remake with uh, Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. That was a big sleep. The remake with Robert Mitchum at the uh, the old Cinerama Dome, which I understand has now been torn down, mm. like everything else. And we got there, and it was just myself and my wife and three other people in the whole Cinerama Dome. The other three people were Hugh Hefner and two of his playmates. <laughs> well, it's kind of strange, because I noticed out front there's a limo parked out in front of the, the Cinerama Dome. And it's just me, my wife, Hugh Hefner, and two of his playmates, and, and the empty Cinerama Dome. So I figured I'd done a pretty good job of, of not being where the herd was. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, well but this is the same thing. Spiritually, when you get in the herd... You 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 are kind of trapped and limited by the by the group mind, right? And like and, you said, sentimentality. You get stuck in a situation where you're going to the same fucking ritual every weekend, even though you don't want to, because oh well, would I wouldn't see these five people ever again if uh, if I stopped? You know, I mean, I'm talking right. about a specific situation, but you know, you get locked in for the wrong reasons. It's not doing anything for you spiritually, but your friends are there, so. You keep so this going. is the astral equivalent of smog. Yeah. No, I mean literally because you know you get you get a, a bunch of people practicing something you don't really understand, and their ignorance or their their fear or their confusion 
um, you know, is like a drop of ink in a clear glass of water. It mm. spreads through the whole liquid. And, uh, you know, I mean, for each town has a kind of collective astral. That's why some towns you really co-vibrate and other towns you just, you know, you just, you know, don't yeah, work for it. It's been so nice that Portland's been leaking into Highland Park lately. Right. Or, but, uh, you know, or the first time, every time I go to San Francisco, the town hugs me. Mm. I mean, I always have amazing experiences because somehow I'm in tune with that collective astral. Yeah. Whereas, you know. Um, if I go to Albuquerque, I just, you know, my whole life I've been going to Albuquerque, and I, I, I co-vibrate with that town not at all. Mm. I think I drove so, through it once. <laughs> well, the, the same thing is with with a group of believers. But let me let me just add something yeah. I never used to say, because it's a really good piece of spiritual self-defense. Any time that you are in great trouble or whatever, you're troubled. You're you're in, you're in trouble. You are not at peace. You're you're very stressed. Whatever. Go into a place of worship. It does not matter what it is. It could be Buddhist. It could be Christian. It could be uh, Muslim. It doesn't matter because those places are repositories of reverence. Hmm. The reverence that the practitioners have brought to that place has created an atmosphere of peace where you can sit and get up to some high levels and get some help. That's good advice. And and, and, and that's the point. The, just a, a, a church, a, you know, any place like that is a repository of reverence per se. Yeah. And as with the story about my mother up on the up on the highway. Uh, the fact that they call it by one name or another is not as important as the fact that that thing is there. Yeah. You can connect with that presence. You know, beings of light. So the beings of light among us, the North, you know. Mm. We, you, they, you know, the, 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 the blessing of the Shambhala that's done at the end of the meditation. Yeah, the yeah. North to the South, to the East, to the West, to the beings of light among us. And to the spirits below Presented our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be in peace. May all beings be serene. Um, yeah, I love that. I because it, it, you know, bypasses if you if you happen to be thinking about oh I hate that person, then you can't do that meditation and and be speaking the truth. You know, when you get to that part when you're saying may all beings and you're kind of somewhere in your mind you're thinking except for that guy. You know, it's like no, no, may yeah. all beings be happy. <laughs> Well, but that's 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 another thing that comes out in the very first one when Andrew's talking about mental feedbacks, mm-hmm. which is the doubting machine, the doubting machine, the reason or whatever is constantly picking apart our experiences. I remember when I first got there, sitting in a dark room with a bunch of other people, going "Om ah whom" was still too embarrassing for me. I yeah. was like, "This is nonsense. I'm speaking nonsense." And Andrew understood fairly quickly. And what he did was he put me in front and had me lead the mantras for eight years, which is where I got this voice. <laughs> that's and I great. Got this voice by singing one note for eight mm. years. Oh wow, that's great. And it completely changed me. But the point was, I started out so uptight I could barely even bring myself to say the words, and I couldn't at home. I mean, I, I mean, you know, saying these things and hearing them out loud was just too embarrassing. It was like, what have you gotten yourself into? What is this mumbo jumbo? And that is the doubting machine. Well, as yeah. you convince the doubting machine, the stuff works. It shuts up. Yeah, you it helps. If you yeah. give it a reason, it, it shuts up and it comes along with you. Yeah. Except, you know, the places where it's like, this is a place that mind cannot go. It will simply, very quietly, shut up 
and wait for you as you go off, as you jump into the, the ocean of the Nagual, as, it, as they say. In the, I, I'm not a believer in the Don Juan books, but most people have read them, so I'm using that language. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, the, my my the dad Tonal had. <laughs> What's that? We live on the island of the Tonal, which oh. is the, the reasonable whatever, and there's the great ocean of the Nagual, which is where all the power lies. Mm. And when we jump into that ocean, you know, we're scared to death, and the mind is saying, no, no, come back. After this, there is no thing, no thing. Mm. So the point of stilling the mental feedbacks is explaining to the mind how this stuff works. And when it understands, it no longer stops you by trying to protect you. Yeah. You know, our mind is a very noble creature. It yeah. spends twenty it spends all of its waking time trying to convince keep us from from killing ourselves. Yeah. You know, we want to sit there and go, Oh, I can fly. Let me put a let me let me uh, safety pin a towel around my neck and I'm gonna jump off this building. And the and mind says no. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, most people look every year kids go to the emergency room with broken bones from doing just that. That's true. And that's the point the mind is trying to defend us from, and it spends all day doing it so that when we're finally in bed and can't hurt ourselves, more or less, the mind is, oh, thank you, and just shuts right off. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the amazing thing about human experience is five minutes later, we don't even know what our name is. <laughs> we're in our dreams, and then we wake up and we say, oh, well, that was all fiction. Hmm. It's all yeah, well, it's half of your subjective life. What person cuts off half their life because they think it, you know, it, it's meaningless? Right. Yeah. Then they wake up and watch but, TV <laughs> and think that's real. Or we say, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I really had a hilarious dream. Yeah. Yeah. But in the West, we literally discount that. We we throw away half of our experience. And in point of fact, there's a lot of stuff you can do in the astral. You can access teaching. You can check on people you love. You can check on people you love who are no longer with us. Yeah. Let me tell you this. I, I, another one, I guess I can tell this story. Sure. Um, Andrew's father was, remember, he was, he was an Italian nobleman. Mm-hmm. He had inherited a Russian, you know, Ducal or, or you know, a, a Russian r- royal estate of someone. He was a count or a duke or an earl, or one of those things. Mm-hmm. And they had a large estate near St. Petersburg. And the Russian Revolution happened, and he lost all of that. He came back to Italy, and he made his money as an international arms merchant because of all of his connections. That's mm-hmm. why Andrew, through his father, Andrew was able to get the radar-guided torpedo for the Italian Navy in World War II. Hmm. And when his father died, he died in Paris with his servants around him, a wealthy man, but he always felt that he'd lost all his money in Russia and was a failure. Interesting. And so when Andrew visited him in the astral, he found him living in this artist's garret, and there wasn't any food, and there was only a candle, and it was very cold. And he said, Father, what are you talking about? Well, you died. You you were a rich man. You were surrounded by your servants in your mansion in Paris. (laughs) No, no, and he finally stopped going because, you know, once you're in the astral, anything you want to believe is true. Hmm. If you're paranoid, there will be people after you. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you create them. It reminds me of Vanilla no, Sky. The reason we <laughs> incarnate is you can't change there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You the, you can so, it's so, relatively solid here. You can, like, you can think about one thing for hours here. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, think, if you're an artist. 
Right. If I'm an artist, I draw a picture of a horse. Okay, I don't like it. So draw another picture of a horse, and I think I'm getting better, but I can now compare them. And right. And later I can uh, – in the astral, the second I look away, it's gone. Right. So I can never make any progress in anything because I have no ability to compare it. This is the heaviest level, the densest level of the universe, but this is the level where you can change and grow. Hmm. His, his father was obsessed with this idea that he died as an impoverished failure, and there was no way Andrew could change that mind. So he said, well, I just left him to it. I don't I stopped visiting. Hmm. Yeah, he'll come around eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Sooner or later, we, we forget, and you know, we get as many ch- tries on the merry-go-round as it takes. Yeah. And you, know, you, can, you can have anything you want in the universe if you're prepared to pay the price. Hmm. But the problem is, you know, the price in many cases is incredibly steep. Yeah. Like the the price for, you know, for harming innocents, the price for murdering well, yeah. people, all yeah. of that sort of thing. Being involved in Well, no in one was actually arms. harmed and no one was actually murdered, but you get to pay that price. Right. And it's not a price that any sane human would ever want to pay. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I mean, this is a... You know, one of the things that the that the that the, the school, that the the path acknowledges is this is a very tough place. This is not a place for a lot of sentimental mumbo jumbo. This is a tough place, and even being alive is not a given. You've got to earn it every day. Yeah. And it's very easy to to slip and not have it anymore. So. The thing that drew me to the work was the fact that here is an actual thing that I can use my brain, that I don't have to give up any religion, and I don't have to believe in any new gods. Yeah. I do the work, and if the work is producing results, I continue doing the work until it no longer produces results. And you always used to say, don't believe anything I tell you. Experiment, experiment. (laughs) Because if I get to my deathbed and I've been told that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, it's all the all the priests and all the cardinals can tell me. But if it's if I don't know, it's of no use. And if I get there and it's not true, then I've wasted my time. Yeah. I need to know. And it was you know, it's a way, a path of knowledge. Yeah, the key a phrase of the age of Aquarius is knowledge. Yeah. And and as a result, it always seemed so strange to me that I looked everywhere to find a school like this. And once I found it, then I tried to tell all my friends, and none of them were interested. And I found out most of the world wasn't interested. And I, I, I could never understand it. But that was like, well, fine, more for me. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I went back to, and started over and did the classes with another new group every for eight years straight. That's great. Because each time each time I got a better idea of what was of what it was really about, what he was doing. After a while I knew the work, so I wanted to see how he did the teaching and how he, you know. And it was interesting though, but every class was slightly different. He he tailored his teaching to each class slightly differently. So, uh, yes, I remember your father very well. I remember your father very well. Uh, what can you tell me uh, as far as that goes? 
Well, I remember him from La Jolla, and he would always sort of sit over in the side, and then he would make a little, he would make a, a little objection or something, and Andrew would say, "Yes, yes, my educated friend," <laughs> and uh, let him go on with his little story, and then he'd go, oh, "Okay, now back to the work." <laughs> and, uh, Sounds like fun. Yeah, my dad uh, was very intellectual. Yes, well, exactly, and then that so was so was the the head of the skeptics thing, and those were the really interesting ones because they had the most feedback. So you can literally see how it was that by going through this kind of process, it dismantled that doubting machine. Yeah, because the doubting machine is is good to a point, but the term analyze means literally to break down, and you can analyze anything into meaninglessness. Yeah, that's true. Bertrand Russell said that uh, ultimate skepticism, while utterly irrefutable, is also completely sterile. Hmm. You know, like the people say, I doubt they landed on the moon. Or, you know, they, they doubt whatever. Well, the point is, yeah, I can't refute you, but at the same time, it doesn't take you anywhere. Right. It's completely sterile. All you've done is you've locked yourself in your own little solipsism, not the only thing that you're the only thing you can prove exists is you. And the, you know that, but the problem is, it, Western thought has, has carried a tremendous number of people to that spot. We, all we want is the rational machine, without understanding that it has very distinct limitations. I think part of that is it can uh, take so far and no further. You, you were talking about the brain protecting us from harm. I think we've been, right. you know, we as a culture have been so harmed by certain forms of Christianity and other forms of, you know, snake oil, uh, you know, con artists that uh, it's a lot easier to just doubt, just to be safe. Let's just right. doubt, you know. Well, sure. And Let's I just see that a lot in the modern age, but the thing that I, I, I always astonishes me is it's like, look, if you go back and you truly do an honest analysis of religions, you find the same con artists that run the same cons no matter what the religion is. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't have anything to do with religion. It's being a con man. It's human nature, yeah. So they say, oh, yeah, it's you know snake oil people selling us as Christianity. No, it's snake oil people selling whatever happens to be available. Right. If they had been in a different culture, they would be selling you a different religion in exactly the same way and being a parasite in exactly the same way and being a predator and a vampire in exactly the same way. Hmm. You know, we, we, we always you know, blame religions for their followers and forget that, in point of fact, those followers would do the same thing no matter if there was no religion. Well, it makes me think of uh, network television wanting to please, you know, a hundred million people at once. And so they find out exactly what they want to see and how quickly and in what order. And then they put it out there for them. It's like the new religion. It's like the new snake oil, the new con artist religion, you know, yeah. and it's and it's not quite true. belief, but the skeptic that you will just they accept it as fiction. And that's different from religion or fact. So it's this third category that they just accept. And unfortunately, that's that's a. It's self-limiting and self-defeating because the simple fact of the matter is look at what's happened to – we had three networks, and they had this mandate to give everybody in America their TV. Hmm. And that's fallen apart, and now even the, the biggest network draw is much smaller than, than, it, than a, a bad network draw used to be back in the olden days. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the central idea that one, or one TV network could provide you with all your entertainment is as laughable now as bloomers. 
Nobody wears bloomers anymore. Nobody expects that CBS is going to give you all the entertainment you need. Yeah, and more people are turning to more than one source for their... We have have 300 channels of crap. (laughs) You know, how many times do you sit there and you you have have hundreds of channels of cable and there's nothing to watch? Hmm. We're evolving. We're evolving, and we're in the third great age of mankind. We're lucky enough to be here for this. The first age was out of Africa. Mm -hmm. We learned fire. We domesticated dogs. We became... Um, sophisticated hunter-gatherers. And then the climate changed, and it led us out of Africa. So we were trapped in the bottom. Africa is a huge continent, by the way, much bigger than we actually think. Hmm. If you really kind of look at it, you know, you could, put, you could put North America and Europe in Africa and have room left over. Oh, wow. It's, it's a huge continent. Well, what happens is that area of the Sahara has been this impenetrable barrier. And then the climate will change, and suddenly there will be paths through, and groups will migrate out, and then it will close again. Hmm. And be, just, le- just with recently with mitochondrial DNA and Y-DNA, we begin to be able to finally, finally, finally track that. Yeah. And so we, we got out, and we populated the second age of mankind. We populated the entire Earth. The third age is we all of a sudden realized that we're the same species, came from the same place, and we've all just met each other for the first time. Hmm. No, we, you know, remember, we used to think that other humans weren't actually humans at all. Yeah. They weren't like us. They weren't actually humans. They were, you know, like... For well, that's why they didn't count as under all men are created equal. Yeah. Right. Well, they weren't men. They yeah. were just really, really, they were very clever monkeys to the slaveholders. You know, yeah. And unfortunately, the, the abolitions of the North realized, Quakers, my people, realized that, no, they were human beings. Yeah. Well, now we know it is. There's only one species of human being, and we can finally take the very best of everything humanity had to offer, which is the third age of mankind, which is right. the, the meeting. Finally apprehending us as ourselves. Well, think of how long this has taken to get here. From, from, from becoming more than just monkeys to become, you know, fire bearers and tool carriers, and then to spread out over the entire face of the earth. And then finally to everybody to have met each other and realize we're all the same again. Yeah. And we have this incredible body of literature and, and art and sim. I mean, uh, getting, 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 getting out from under the, the trappings of religion and the way that things can be abused, if you can transcend it and just look at it, it's so beautiful and just so ornate. It's like the greatest Christmas tree. Well, the other thing is some of the greatest thoughts of, of mankind are contained in those texts. Some of the greatest art of humankind is contained in those temples. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is our heritage as, as humans. Yeah. And... As long as we're stuck in these parochial, I mean, getting back to what we were talking about with, uh, remember, we have been making cairns and, and, and graves, you know, because we're, we don't understand death for a very long time, yeah. probably back, going back before pre-language. Yeah. Oh, by the by, you know, we never lost, uh, we never lost caveman language. Huh? Uh-uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we just got more words. Yeah. We just got more work. We still grunt. Yeah. We still grunt. Um, we uh, we are now, look, I remember when I first went to the school, this was all 
transmitted orally teacher to student with the promise that you would not pass it on um, to people who were not up against a progressive work, that you wouldn't just give little bits and pieces to people who weren't properly prepared and had gone through the, the system. Right. And for the tantric kundalini techniques, they had you, you came with your partner and Andrew personally counseled you in them. Hmm. At a certain point, um, it's interesting. You know, there are masters have coffee clutches the same way that uh, housewives in, in Beverly Hills do. Have like little little enlightened teachers sort of sort of uh, gossip. Oh right. People would come to town and and Andrew, they'd see Andrew and they'd exchange the spiritual gossip of the. Um, well, it, it came down. Everybody was getting the same thing at a certain point, which was the mid '80s, that. Just whatever, forget the secrecy stuff. Throw the stuff out into the street for anybody who could get it to get it. Hmm. Just get rid of all the secrecy and whatever. If anybody could get it or whatever, then throw it out on the chance that they could get it because things were rapidly getting very, going to start getting very bad. Hmm. So by the time I left the school, everything could basically be given out. When I first started going there, we basically kind of took a made a promise not to give out the information to people who weren't ready for it. Interesting. Well, because again, it's not little old ladies in tennis shoes with tape recorders. This is stuff that really works and can screw you up big time. Yeah. I once met a man on Hollywood Boulevard who was crazy and I couldn't figure out why he was crazy, but I spent a long time and I'd listen to him and he'd come in and talk and this and that and the other. I was working at a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And I finally realized after many conversations what was wrong with him. He obviously had a good mind. He obviously had good education, but he would start to speak to you, and then his thoughts would literally deteriorate right in front of your eyes. It would just turn into meaningless garbledygook. And I finally got out of him. What he had done was he'd done pranayama breathing. Mm -hmm. And like a good Westerner, when you're supposed to do it nine times a day, he did it 90. Mm. And he did it without a teacher. He did it without guidance. And since it's a real thing, it fried his brain. And I asked Andrew about the guy, and he said, well, there's nothing you can do because it's organic damage. He has to have a new body before he can fix it. Mm. There's nothing you can do. I'm sorry. And we saw that with a couple of people. We had a crazy woman come in one night, and I had to literally carry her out of the temple. Wow. Um, and he said he let her... For, for And then he explained to people that this is what happens when you sit there and you do these techniques and you decide, oh, well, they're, just, they, they're, just, they're not important or anything. And you overdo them. You know, Americans, if, if you're supposed to take one, we take ten. Yeah. He's supposed to do nine breathing exercises. Pranayama is very powerful. It works whether you believe in it or not. It's like electricity. Like, you know, lick my finger and put it in a live light socket. Does it matter whether I believe in electricity or not? <laughs> no. No, I get the same effect. Well, that's what he did, and it literally fried his brain. Hmm. And you could see what happened. There was literally organic damage to his brain. He had a. He would just all of a sudden start, and then the monkeys, and then uh, over there, I see. So somebody. this must be some pretty advanced pranayama, because I know there's techniques where you just breathe in and out slowly, or you breathe out, you know, and it takes twice as long as it takes to breathe in, or vice versa, and stuff like that. So this, yeah, this well, must be like breath of techniques. But the point is, no, pranayama is pranayama. Right. And if you overdo it at whatever level, the problem is it is just like electricity. It doesn't matter how much you believe in it. It works. Right. 
there are a lot of pranayana technique pranayama techniques mm-hmm. the really quick ones probably the the <laughs> you know something like that yeah, all day exactly. you know yeah yeah makes sense well the, the point generally is in 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 in, uh, in any pranayama practice you don't start out by doing 6 hour meditation yeah you build up to it yeah exactly but yeah. you know, like it's, that's one of the reasons we, we it's 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 important to have a teacher, yeah. a coach, somebody who can say, you know, can help you if you start to fall off the the path at a certain point. Because at a, at certain moments, you know, one of the great acts of spiritual arrogance that you see constantly is you always run into people. Who go, oh, I don't need a teacher. Right. The answer is, yeah, you do. <laughs> You know, people who don't need a teacher generally end up, they, they end up being the people on the streets like that guy coming up to me, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with them. Right. Because nobody was able to help them at the critical moment. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're the old Japanese thing, you know, the, 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 the various stages of the bull, catch bullet four. Um, you know, first we do the reading. Now, first we get the idea of the bull, then we do the reading, then we do the searching. Finally, we run into the teacher. Hmm. And then we throw the practice away and go out and live in the world. Um, The same thing is true with all these different schools. And I'm just saying, the stuff that really has power, people act as though it doesn't, and they get themselves in terrible, terrible trouble. Yeah. It, it's sort of like the person who uh, – it's sort of like that idiot Maureen Dowd who decided she's going to fly to Colorado for the first day of legal pot. And she buys herself an edible uh, – probably a, a brownie. Mm-hmm. And she, she eats the proper amount, and nothing happens, so she says, well, that, nothing's happening, so she takes the whole one. Mm-hmm. Has an incredibly bad, paranoid experience and writes about how terrible pot is in the New York Times. Well, <laughs> whose fault was that? <laughs> but we do the same thing with spirituality. Yeah. We say, well, you know, nothing's happening, so let me do a lot more, and then we get ourselves in some real trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you've got the rest of your existence to to find enlightenment. You know, take your time and do it right. Yeah. I mean, you need water, but too much water will kill you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Almost anything done to excess becomes toxic. Yeah. Except, ironically, hot. (laughs) <laughs> they've never found it. they've never found an overdose for that yeah yeah thank you so much for speaking to me today let me see we've got a lot of material for a first run and i'm hoping that um once we get these ideas out there and then kind of like let them settle then we'll know where to go next like where's a, a good specific place to look um jeff trosper has uh, apparently all the books and uh shakina has all the tapes and so as that stuff gets unveiled uh you know and revealed i can send you what i've got access to we can go through it go over it and then i have you know i would like to one of these days do a road trip up to oregon and if you're interested i would like to you know attend one of andrew's classes that you taught for for eight years uh you know i mean like in as much as 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 uh as you'd be willing and able to impart and um You know, I would well, love I, that. I, I think. Good class. Yeah. You know, I, I posted a couple on the Andrew students one, mm-hmm. um, because these were these were classes most people would would relate to and know exactly what was going on. Excellent. Um, you know, they're not very. They're not. They, I, I posted the ones I posted. They're not specific classes because you know the first eight months are basically, uh, you know, you start here and you end here, like like flight school. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's not one of those things that you can just sort of randomly get something off of. But every Jump so often in. he does like a, yeah. a meditation of passion or whatever. And those those are the ones I've posted because you don't have to have any any for you know prior knowledge to understand what he's what he's getting at. Yeah. Well, it'd also be nice to put together kind of a codified body of what that eight month process is, so that maybe at some I point agree. in the future we can, uh, you know, have uh, have that go on in you know some form. I always felt Andrew gave me permission to teach, but I always believed the person I taught was my brother and my brother basically because all he was, he, he called finally desperately out of the blue and he was seeing, you know, he's seeing his grand, his grandfather in a coffin every night and he couldn't sleep and da 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 da. And I said, Andrew, can I, you know, he said, yes, yes. And, um, I took him through it, and he liked it enough. He, he he managed to figure out a way to get himself transferred down to Ventura, and then attended Andrew's classes for many years. Oh, great! But uh, I've always, you know, since Andrew died, everything was so dispersed. I've, I've always wanted to put something back together and start recollecting the information. Yeah. And you know, it's like I have I have a certain amount of material, but there's gaps and holes in it. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, I would I would probably start a branch of the school here. But I figured I would wait until I was 60 to do it, and I turned 60 this year. So, oh, wow. Happy um, birthday. Well, yeah, yeah, well, a mixed blessing. Turning <laughs> 60 is not anything I really was looking for. <laughs> um, but the point was that, you know, it was very interesting. Andrew was in his 70s and then 80s, and most of his students were in their 20s. Hmm. And we had a certain number of celebrities and all those kind of fun Hollywood things. Um but it always struck me as very it, – it, eventually I understood why. We're not a sentimental school. We're for people who are really serious about this stuff. And most metaphysical schools end up being kind of a glorified sort of uh, coffee clutch. Yeah. You can come in and get the latest spiritual gossip about your way, and you've got the special way, and nobody else does. And um, you know, I don't care if, if we're talking about a Rancha or Seventh-day Adventists or, uh, you know um, – or, or or a or a uh, mosque that that uh, that worships the the seventh imam. Hmm. That it's the seventh imam or the thirteenth imam, whichever one. <laughs> oh, you know the the obscure apocalyptic knowledge that nobody else has, or Kabbalah, right. or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and everybody gets to you know be cool and hip and groovy. And in point of fact, you know, I understand what you're saying about when you're in school saying, "Well, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist." People then are, "Oh yeah, really." And uh, I once had somebody who's, who's a fr- good friend of mine who just passed away recently. His mother said, oh, my God, that's left-handed tantric Buddhism. You need to stay away from that. That's all this horrible stuff. And she completely freaked him out. She's a curator at a museum in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, and she had great, great knowledge. But her knowledge was completely worthless in actual context. Right. Understanding of Tibetan Buddhism in Western texts is about nil. Hmm. It's about as, as great as, as uh, understanding of quantum mechanics is in ancient Sanskrit texts. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it may seem very knowledgeable and all of that, but it's the knowledge that they have and it has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. Yeah. And got this with Tibetan Buddhism a lot. It, it's even this, look, when I went to Boulder and went to the Naropa Institute, I was told that I was a member of a bastard branch of Tibetan Buddhism. And I've taken that as as a badge of honor ever since. And said, so, you know, look, I can't be a Tibetan Buddhism. The official guys told me I'm I'm, I'm from a bastard branch. So. <laughs> you 
Because the point is enlightenment. It is not ego boost. Yeah, the point is getting yeah. there. It's not what cool, groovy stuff. If somebody asks you what you are, just say, I'm a Methodist, and be done with it. Hmm. Interesting. You know, if at any point in your life you were a Methodist, then technically you still are, because Buddhism hasn't changed your belief system. It's right. changed your knowledge. Yeah. I actually started out Tibetan Buddhist, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Okay. I understand, and I understand, uh, you know, what it's like to feel cut off from that community and anybody else who who uh, knows anything about it. I remember yeah. when I reconnected with my second wife after a million years. We both went to classes, and that's a big chunk of what we talked about. And she and I went over this stuff because she'd been trying to teach her kids, but she couldn't remember this stuff and that. And I was like, well, I, I can remember that. And, you know, it was just nice to have any community at all. Yeah. Of people who remembered. Yeah, you bring three or four heads together, and it's like super brain. <laughs> I think it's that. Yeah, that's the whole point. Two, where two or more are gathered brain. together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But more than that, it's called. We have an overemphasis on the individual in the West, in the same way that they have an overemphasis on the society in the East. Hmm. The point is, society is 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 useless without. In decent, strong individuals, but strong individuals are absolutely useless without society. Yeah. If you don't have, if we are such a social creature that we don't even recognize it anymore. But if you take us away from our, what we do is we take a volleyball, uh, paint a face on it, and yell at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we, the thing that, and I want to just add this as the last thing. This is the least understood and the least talked about portion of Andrew's work, and yet it's been my focus for 30 years now, mm-hmm. is there was something that we all got, which was called the Castellani Letters, which Castellani wrote toward the end of the Second World War. And what it was about is, okay, you've gotten enlightened. You've gotten your own stuff. You know your answers. You've got your spiritual trip together, all of this stuff. What about society? How do we apply enlightenment to government and society? Hmm. How do you come down from the mountain and live in the world? There's no other school I've ever seen that even talks about that. Hmm. And this was an important thing that very few were interested. I mean, we had some Castellani letters meetings, and they kind of petered out. But I've followed it ever since because it's called, at the end, why did I become enlightened? Why did I want to seek enlightenment if not to be able to bring that energy and that message and that light back to greater society? How do we reintegrate our spiritual life with our physical life? Because during the period of seeking, you you might notice New Age people are the most selfish people on earth. I remember I had a, a good friend of mine, Annie, who was a massage therapist and spent all her time counseling people and all of this stuff. And then she got herself in a terrible situation. She said, my God, I sit there and I give and I give and I give. And then when I'm in trouble, all of these people are like, well, I have my own thing to, to look after. Right. I don't have time to help you. And she thought that was the very antithesis of, of spirituality and whatever. And I was going, yes, but it's also very totally normal. Because we never stop to think after enlightenment, then what? And actually, even while waiting for enlightenment, then what? How do we take this spiritual stuff and reintegrate it into the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of finding a parking space and, you know, being on time to the doctor's office and, you know, 
working ethically at a job you you have some questions about corporate policies with, and all of these things. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is the aspect of spirituality that no one has addressed, and a little bit in 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 the school we began to address that, and that still is amazing to me. Yeah, I think I'd like to talk about those thing. letters if you'd like. I mean, you know, maybe on sure. a. I, I, Mm-hmm. I have a copy of the Castellani letters. We can we can share them at some point. Yeah, yeah, that'd be if an interesting topic for maybe our next chat. All right. Very cool. So it's really been good to talk to you, Eddie. It's, well, thank you so much for speaking to me tonight on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. All right, and and uh, Namaste to all of our listeners. Namaste, Om Ahom. I think the, the ceiling mantra is Alm. Uh, Alm, which, which in the West, Alm has been slightly. Slightly altered, but we say amen, which is the same thing. Oh, oh, oh um, uh, and then amen or, our cognate. It just means so be it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a way of stealing your work. And uh, is it so H O M or H U M at the end? Um, hum. No, I was just curious. Ow. 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 Which actually. In, in a sense, almost completely summarizes. I mean, that's how we end. We begin the the, med- the traditional meditation, throwing out the chakra work because the chakra work is this different thing. With Omahum three times, mm-hmm. then we do the visualization to to freeze the body, to calm the emotions, to freeze the mind. Then we do our work, and when we come back out, we do the the blessing for the mountain, mm-hmm. and we form the Grail, and then. We seal the work with the mantram um, three times. What's forming the grail? Sealing. Well, we'll, form, I, we'll, we'll talk about the grail at some other point. Okay. How's that? Yeah, because certainly. Let, let's, you know, that, that's when we get – I've tried to stick very much to what it was that you learned in the first couple of classes. Yeah. Because they're so important. Yeah, certainly. Then after about the second or third class, we go into the meditation room and start to meditate. Right. I got a little ahead by explaining what the om, ah, and whom mean. And mm-hmm. now, aum. <laughs> um, they each have a very specific value, and they're used for a specific purpose. And there's no, you're, you're not doing anybody else's gods. You're not, uh, you know, for instance, like with Hari, with, with uh, Nishwan Shoshu Buddhism, you're, or, or many times Western practitioners of, of Eastern and even Tibetan practice are speaking words that they don't understand what they're saying. Right. And that's that's you know that's a dangerous thing, because just because you don't believe in those gods doesn't mean they don't believe in you. <laughs> um, but also because words, we think in the West words are arbitrary. In the East, they have mantra yoga. I mean, Vedantic Hinduism and and Buddhism have been very specific for a very long time. The word is intimately connected with the thing, and as you. You know, mantra yoga is the invocation of specific qualities or things through the word. You know, in the beginning, it was the word, and the word was a god, and the word moved on the waters, and yada da. Mm-hmm. Open your jaw. Um, so it's very important to understand that these mantras that we're using are not invoking other deities or anything. They have a very specific purpose, and they do a very specific thing. Omahum and Alm, same thing. You seal the work, which is. You complete what you're doing, and now you're done. You don't continue, you know, messing with it or, un- in many cases, undoing it by by continuing to play with it long after you're out of the meditation room. Right. You seal the work, you're done, you move on. My dad would clap after the third aum and then turn the incense over just to kind of, like, further seal it up. Well, 
That was his thing. He, he <laughs> added that, but, you know, hey, no, seriously, you know, the idea, Andrew always said, I give you a box of tools, but don't, you know, use them in, in other ways. Learn how to, you know, use the tools for what you need to do. Yeah. If you need the tools to fix your refrigerator, then fix your refrigerator. If you need the tools to fix your car, then fix your car. But don't just mindlessly follow me. You know, adapt these tools to your life. That is something I'm interested in, though, because my mom told me that the meditation my dad taught me was my dad's version of Andrew's meditation. So I'd be interested in learning the pure, you know, the, the straight stuff so that I'd know, you know, just out of for curiosity what it was that my dad added. You know, what, what was it that was his version as opposed to Andrew's version? Well, we'll, well how about we, we pursue that next yeah, time? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're in touch, and, and thank you very much for, for sharing all this with me. We will talk again. Okay. Have a great day. It was a very good to talk to you, Edward. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hart Williams, for speaking with me on the Esoteric Nerd podcast tonight. I look forward to speaking with you next time, getting a little further in depth with some of these things. Special thanks to everyone involved in the production of the Christopher Eccleston Doctor Who in 2005. Special thanks to Brian Regan. Probably. Special thanks to The Price is Right. Special thanks to Camille and Kennerly. Special thanks to the monks. Special thanks to our patrons and donors. If you have more money than you need and you want to encourage me to stay home and make more episodes rather than waste time out Uber driving to make money, there is a link at the bottom of edward-reed.com forward slash V-H-F-R-A-T-E-R-B-T. Not the Easter egg. Just about that. Thank you all for tuning in. Good night.